You're listening to the Diplomats Asian Geopolitics Podcast. I'm your host, Catherine Putz, coming to you from Washington, D.C. And this is Ankit Panda, also in Washington, D.C. Welcome back, Ankit. It has been a while. Uh, we are going to have to apologize again to our listeners for a little bit of crazy timing, but both Ankit and I were traveling in the last month, and so it was sort of hard to schedule time to talk. But we have a great episode planned for you today. We're going to be discussing uh, North Korean leader Kim Jong-un's meeting with Russian President Vladimir Putin, which happened last month. I happened to be in Seoul when it was happening, uh, but uh, excited to talk to Ankit about that meeting. So for those of you who don't remember, on September 13th, uh, Kim Jong-un met with Putin in uh, the Russian Far East at the Vostochny Cosmodrome. Uh, we can get into that. I know a little bit about that. I'd love to talk to you about space. But the content of that meeting was certainly colored by the war in Ukraine. Uh, North Korea is one of the few countries that has been staunchly, staunchly in support of Vladimir Putin and in uh, uh, Russia in general, voting in the UN, always in Russia's favor. Uh, but I think one of the major issues uh, that came up during this meeting, or at least in the discussion around this meeting, was the idea of arms sales ammunition um, from North Korea to Russia. Uh, but so Ankit, tell us a little bit about the background of this meeting, about the history of the relationship between uh, these two countries, and we can take it from there. Yeah. Um, I mean, first of all, Katie, it's, it is it is good to be back. And yeah, apologies to listeners for the break in uh, podcast episodes, but certainly geopolitics in Asia does not wait. And, and I got to say, we talk a lot about North Korea on this podcast, but I, I really should emphasize, I mean, it's it's really impossible to do a podcast on Asian geopolitics in this day and age and not talk about this summit, because I do think it's a really meaningful change in how both Russia and North Korea uh, are approaching each other, right? North Korea, first of all, is a country that has, uh, I mean, throughout its history, navigated periods of great geostrategic realignment between the great powers uh, in ways to seek advantage for itself. You know, Kim Jong, uh, I mean, you can go all the way back to the country's founding out of the ashes of the Second World War. Uh, and of course, in the lead up to the Korean War, um, the very idea of North Korea being even led by Kim Il-sung in the first place, Kim Jong-un's grandfather, was a product of Soviet decision-making. And similarly, during the Cold War, uh, Kim Il-sung navigated the Sino-Soviet split when Moscow and Beijing had a few disagreements between themselves to great advantage. Um, the collapse of the Soviet Union was yet another period of sort of introspection for North Korea, leading eventually, of course, to um, the first period of diplomatic engagement with the United States over its nuclear program. Uh, and then now, amid this broader set of geopolitical realignments in Northeast Asia, not least um, being the U.S.-China um, strategic relationship becoming a lot more confrontational. I think North Korea is taking great advantage of Russia's general willingness to throw caution to the wind when it comes to international norms and laws and, and pursue advantage, right? This is a territorially contiguous great power. They have a land border. They have a rail link. There's a long list of quid pro quos that both leaders, I think, stand to benefit from. And that, I think, is the general logic that leads to this remarkable summit uh, between Kim and Putin. But I should also say, Katie, I mean, a lot of this, I think, is tempting to view through the lens of the post-Ukraine war transformation of Russian foreign policy. But mm -hmm. for North Korea and Russia, a lot of the groundwork here has actually been uh, you know, laid going all the way back to 2019, right? Kim and Putin met for the first time just uh, a couple months 
uh, actually less than a couple months after the U.S.-North Korea summit collapsed in Hanoi uh, with, with no deal, of course, of, for denuclearization. And beginning in 2019, Kim Jong-un starts talking about a, quote, new way. And he's a little ambiguous about what exactly he means, but that's the general period in which we begin to see all kinds of new diplomatic engagements between Russia and North Korea. There's also another unappreciated factor here, which is that you know, diplomatically, the COVID-19 pandemic deeply isolated North Korea. Uh, Western governments that had diplomatic missions saw most of their staff uh, leave, eventually all of their staff leave. Um, but amid all of the diplomatic isolation, uh, the Russians actually maintained a very strong foothold in Pyongyang. In fact, uh, Alexander Matsagora, uh, a name that probably not a lot of podcast listeners have heard of, uh, the Russian ambassador in Pyongyang, is now the longest serving continuous foreign diplomat in North Korea under under the Kim Jong-un era. He was, he was there before the pandemic, he's still there, uh, and he has been instrumental in facilitating the work leading up to this summit. Um, so that's the general background here. Uh, there's, of course, a lot more depth that we can go into, uh, given the uh, long um, and, and often difficult relationship between Moscow and Pyongyang. But I think now, with the groundwork that's been laid since 2019 and the opportunities that have opened up for North Korea with Russia's broader foreign policy recalibrations in the aftermath of the Ukraine war... Um, there's a lot, I think, uh, Kim especially is looking to gain, uh, and, and Putin as well. Yeah, thank you so much for sort of reaching back to the history on that, because I do think that when we discuss North Korea these days, we often just sort of reach for China. We don't focus so much on the, the Soviet Union's uh, involvement in the, in the Korean War and on the Korean Peninsula. And so I'm, I'm glad you brought that up, because I think it does bring, it does provide a basis for that relationship that is pretty old. Um, but sort of moving moving forward, I wanted to dive a little bit into the military dimension of this meeting. You know, North Korea is particularly interested in reconnaissance satellites and nuclear submarine technology, uh, which Russia can provide. And it's there have been sort of reports that uh, Pyongyang has supplied Moscow with ammunition um, and, and weapons to sort of backfill its stocks. Um, and so, I, and I think this is particularly interesting because I think we have often this sort of stereotypical view of North Korea. And so it, them as an arms producer that would be supplying the Russians doesn't make a lot of sense to some people. Um, so I kind of want, want to have you explain sort of the, the military basis for that relationship and, and sort of do you think that that arms trade is happening and, and how useful is it more symbolic? Is it, is it more important? Um, where do you, where, where do you land on the analysis on that? Yeah. So, you know, it, it, it's not something that I think a lot of people who have thought about weapons proliferation have really considered in the last 30 years, right? The idea that countries like Iran and North Korea would all of a sudden become major suppliers for a, country that was once perceived as a global military superpower. Of course, the Russian military's mm -hmm. performance in Ukraine has sort of changed people's perception with uh, with regard to that. But there's a pretty simple uh, kind of uh, arithmetic here, right? The Russians need, um, the Russians have, uh, you know, are expending millions and millions of artillery shells uh, in, in Ukraine, and they have the ability to produce around 2 million a month. Uh, but they also can benefit from North Korea's uh, deep stocks of reverse compatible 155 millimeter artillery shells mm -hmm. and a 240 millimeter rocket artillery systems, right? This is what I think is the most likely transfers from North Korea to Russia. Um, there's been some ambiguity uh, about when exactly the transfers began. Uh, there was that New York mm -hmm. Times story last fall where U.S. sources said that the transfers had happened 
But then American sources this year sort of walked that back and implied that the transfers hadn't yet happened. And South Korean intelligence, too, has uh, recently released some uh, um, information to the press there that uh, there have been signs of transshipment across the border. Uh, but in any ways, I mean, you know, I think this is the most likely type of transfer to take place. For North Korea, it makes a lot of sense because as they develop their nuclear capabilities and more advanced conventional capabilities, they don't necessarily need to rely as much on the older uh, artillery systems, which used to be an important part of their deterrent, right? Uh, Seoul is less than 50 miles from the border, and having a bunch of 155mm artillery shells and rocket artillery uh, proved a powerful deterrent uh, for a long time. Of course, nuclear weapons uh, now uh, change the equation pretty significantly for the North Koreans. Um, but more broadly, we've also seen the North Koreans start to liquidate uh, their conventional uh, capabilities as they re rely more on nuclear weapons. Uh, in 2017, there was a publicized case of uh, 30,000 rocket-propelled grenades that the North Koreans were attempting to ship to the Egyptians that was uh, interdicted by the United States, I believe. Um, and then for Russia, um, uh, sorry, for North Korea looking into Russia, uh, there's a long list of benefits, right? You already alluded to the benefits that come with having a member of the P5 at the UN Security Council on your side. Uh, but here I should note that both Russia and China since 2019 have been pretty reluctant to punish North Korea at the UNSC. Uh, you know, last year after the ICBM tests resumed, uh, both Beijing and Moscow uh, opposed the, even the issuance of a presidential statement at the Security Council. But, you know, the symbolism of meeting at the Vostokny Cosmodrome and uh, Putin explicitly saying that the reason they were meeting there was because of Kim's, quote, great interest in rocket technology, I think really underscores just how far this has come, right? I mean, this was pretty unimaginable just a few years ago when the Russians in 2017, for instance, um, even refused to believe that the North Koreans had developed an ICBM. And here are Kim and Putin now meeting at a spaceport in the Russian Far East talking about jointly developing satellites. That just goes to show how, how far things have come. Uh, there's a pretty long list of what the North Koreans could look to gain here. Kim's in the middle of a widely ambitious um, modernization program, and uh, he can benefit from Russian knowledge. Uh, I don't think naval nuclear propulsion technology, which sort of showed up in the New York Times again, uh, quoting an American official, is going to be high on the list, uh, just given that the Russians um, have never explicitly transferred that technology to another country and probably wouldn't be willing to do so with North Korea for anything short of a pretty high cost that the North Koreans might not be able to pay. But otherwise, I mean, you know, s developing satellites, um, even getting spare parts and uh, capabilities to maintain North Korea's aging and obsolete fleet of uh, Soviet-origin submarines and fighter aircraft and transports, that could all be very valuable for North Korea. There's a lot to be gained here. Um, ultimately, I think this is, you know, th the logic driving this, I think, is primarily transactional, despite the dressing of the two leaders kind of you know, talking about their broad opposition to the United States-led world order. I don't think the primary motivation of this is ideological, despite the temptation in D.C. to kind of see this as evidence of a new authoritarian axis. Um, but I do think, um, you know, it is in the benefit of both Putin and Kim to portray that they do have this common um, problem with a world where the United States and the West continue to write the rules. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, th I think you're right. I don't think this relationship would be progressing if there weren't actual perceived benefits uh, on both sides, as opposed to just the ideological similarities. Uh, you know, I don't I don't think that's what what drives them. I think it's it's important to uh, Kim that he gets certain things from Russia and Russia also needs certain things from from North Korea. And so it, it, it works out. Um, turning a little bit to North Korea's other 
uh, partnerships. You know, North Korea is China's only official ally. How do you think sort of this deepening relationship between Russia and North Korea is is viewed in Beijing? Is it viewed as sort of a threat uh, or is it, it does nobody care that much? Uh, I'm curious about the dynamics of that sort of trilateral in a way. Yeah, it's been interesting. I mean, I haven't I haven't had a chance to speak to too many um, Chinese analysts or scholars who look at North Korea closely since the summit. Um, but there is, I think, an obvious observation to be made here, which is that traditionally uh, North Korean leaders have emphasized their relationship with China um, in in their sort of first trips overseas. And in particular, when Xi Jinping and Kim uh, met way back in uh, 2018 for the first time, the state media readouts of that meeting in both China and North Korea emphasized um, the importance of high-level exchanges, which I interpreted as Xi telling Kim that he wanted to be kept in, in the loop, uh, right? China and North Korea are commonly seen as um, you know stalwart partners and allies, but there's a lot of unease in that relationship. And so now, after three-plus years of self-imposed isolation, Kim choosing to make his first overseas trip to the Russian Far East to meet Putin, and not Xi, I think, sends a message, right? Uh, and, and, I, and I think it's an unavoidable one. Uh, it doesn't necessarily suggest great discord in the China-North Korea relationship, right? There was a senior, uh, Li Hongzhong, a member of the Politburo, was in Pyongyang for a military parade alongside the Russian defense minister. Uh, she and Kim have exchanged letters throughout the pandemic um, on, on sort of prominent holidays and occasions. So it's not a sign of great discord, but I do think it's a sign that uh, right now, uh, Russia is willing to give North Korea more of the things that it wants. Uh, meanwhile, I think China's overarching interest regarding North Korea continues to largely be the same as it always has been, which is uh, stability above all, making sure that the regime uh, doesn't come too close to destabilizing the Korean Peninsula and causing a conflict, but also that um, the you know internal economic situation and external sanctions don't bring North Korea to the point of collapse necessarily. Uh, but of course, I don't think China is going to be willing to you know give Kim Jong Un many of the capabilities that he's seeking in the way that Russia is. Uh, so it's interesting, uh, you know. Now though, I think that uh, Kim has started traveling overseas again, uh, I would strongly expect his next meeting uh, to be with Xi Jinping at some point. Uh, in fact, I would be very surprised if we don't see a Xi-Kim meeting within the next you know, four to five months. Uh, it would be pretty unusual um, to uh, not have that kind of a, um, a reconnection with the Chinese at the highest levels, given what um, Xi and Kim have discussed during their previous summits. It seems to be something that China in particular values. Well, the listeners, you've heard it here first, Ankit's prediction. <laughs> yeah, so I, I, predicting well, North we'll, Korea is we'll, always we'll dangerous business. Yeah, It is a dangerous business, but I do think that's a reasonable expectation, uh, not, not an unreasonable one. I think maybe the only um, complicating factor is sort of Xi Jinping's uh, seeming reluctance to ha go out and, and meet uh, various leaders. His sort of travel has been fairly limited since the pandemic, even after sort of returning to travel. But we will certainly keep an eye on that. Uh, do you have any final thoughts, Ankit, on this topic before we we close up? Yeah, I mean, I always have I always have thoughts on North Korea, right? But um, <laughs> but I mean, let me just let me just say this to close, right? I think I think the real significance, um, and particularly you know for any listeners uh, who care about U.S., South Korean, or Japanese policy on denuclearization in particular. You know, this Kim-Putin summit 
Um, for the first time, arguably since the collapse of the Soviet Union and the initiation of North Korea's pursuit of nuclear weapons, I think represents a really significant change in Northeast Asian geopolitics that provides North Korea with just a tremendous opportunity to continue sustaining its its nuclear weapons program indefinitely, right? That was already the case, in my opinion, even before this summit. But the fact that Kim now has access to raw materials, maintenance, satellite technologies, all kinds of goodies from the Russian Federation, a territorially contiguous power where external forces have no ability to prevent trade between North Korea and Russia along their land border mm -hmm. or their maritime, um, their territorial seas, without, of course, starting a major war, um, that I think has serious implications for how we think about um, the policy approach to North Korea, right? Uh, mm -hmm. Keeping Kim from developing his capabilities further through the implementation of international sanctions, I think this is absolutely the final nail in that coffin, uh, right? That, that, that policy has been struggling for a long time, but I think this is explicitly um, a moment where there should be a wake-up call uh, in Washington and Seoul that the status quo policy approach uh, isn't going to work in the way that it, um, I mean, not that it was ever working, but especially now, I think there's really a strong reason to rethink things. Um, what, you know, I could go into what might be done about this, but I'll, but I'll kind of spare you that. But, but more broadly, I think that is the takeaway here, that if Putin and Kim are going to be doing business in the way that they've indicated that they will, that presents, I think, a serious challenge uh, for containing and uh, constraining uh, North Korea's capabilities. All right. Well, on that note, we will close up. As always, it's a pleasure to talk to you, Ankit, and I'm sure we will get back to that final thought of yours on what can be done about North Korea in a later episode. Uh, for our listeners, please uh, like us, leave a review, recommend us to your friends, and, and always feel free to get in touch with Ankit or I uh, about topics you'd like to see us cover. We will try to be a bit more consistent uh, this fall and winter as our, as our travel schedules sort of calm down. And uh, thank you again for your patience and your listening. Have a great uh, day wherever you are. Thanks, Katie. Always fun chatting.